Hi, I'm Prudence Pfeiffer. I'm managing editor of the creative team. I'm Thomas Lax, and I'm a curator here at the Museum of Modern Art. And this is the Books That Matter podcast. Hello. Good to see you, Prue. Nice to see you, Thomas. So we are here with our inaugural Books That Matter podcast. And I guess we should say a little bit about what this is. We sort of realize we both love to read and have strong opinions about things. Totally. That and I we think read. We like live in a world like many people where, you know, space to read and talk about the things that we read is not always prioritized. But obviously given that we work in a museum, felt like being engaged in a lot of different kinds of reading is really important to doing our job with like life and love and creativity. So we started making a list of books that we had read recently or wanted to read that were coming out that were not necessarily directly about art or about modernism, but that felt like they took up some themes or that there was some overlap there that would be interesting to think through. You know, we've chosen nonfiction books that have fictional elements. We've chosen novels that have historical elements. We've chosen group biographies. This is a kind of fangirl list. Yes, it's we've, very true. We come to this list because we, you know, as critical as we are, um, we also found lots of pleasure inside of these texts. Um, and that feels like something to invite other people into. So our first book is Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments by Sadia Hartman. So Sadia Hartman, for the last maybe 25 years, has been writing about what she describes as the afterlife of slavery, um, kind of asking how, you know, the fundamental social relationships that organize much of um, political life in the United States uh, continue to be structured around um, different dynamics that emerged from the transatlantic slave trade. And then this book kind of leaps forward in time to the moment truly after the emancipation of slavery in the early part of the 20th century, um, when, you know, the kind of descendants of formerly enslaved people were moving from the South to the North, here specifically New York City and Philadelphia, and the ways that they were trying to break free from the forms of servitude that had structured their lives previously. To me, that was one of the most powerful aspects of this book was how the kind of structure of slavery still really exists several generations after slavery. And these young women who are the protagonists of this book, real women in history, many of them are moving from the South to the North with this kind of hopeful promise of a new life and kind of starting to create a new world and the new possibilities in the United States and then come upon, as you say, the reality of laws and uh, like physical structures even really that don't allow them to have the lives that they deserve and that they so yearn for. I, I'm just looking at the subtitle of the hardcover book, yes. Intimate Histories of Social Upheaval, because it really speaks to what you're describing that, you know, she's basically narrating uh, what she describes as a, re a revolution, right? Very much um, building off of other conceptions of revolution from Marx to Du Bois to, you know, others who've kind of thought through anti-slave or um, anti-capitalist forms of revolution, but one that is happening uh, in a way that um, is maybe invisible to those yeah. other 
kind of theorists or historians um, because of this question of intimacy that you're naming. And for me, I think I described this as like, it was almost like ripping a seam open in history that you thought you knew. And then this sadness and the singing and dancing and images and history just kind of come pouring out. And um, it, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a very moving, a moving read. I mean, I don't want to say it's more exciting than you might expect from a book of such scholarly uh, rigor, but it definitely, it's a it's a page turner. And, and I guess in a way that also connects to something that is really important for us um, in doing this project in that we wanted to encourage listeners to really read along with us. It's a, it's a text that has been taken up by many of the artists who are in MoMA's collection or who are working, um, you know, across the world. So we were lucky enough to have Sadia Hartman herself come into the studio and to be able to talk with her about this incredible book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. With generosity, talk to us about her process, about some of the origin stories of the text, um, and some of the ambitions of its life in the world. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So thrilled, idea that you're with us here today at MoMA in our sound studio to talk about your latest book. And I think we wanted to begin at the beginning of your process. I had written two books about slavery, and even though I had the concept of the afterlife of slavery, and I was fully aware that the structural legacy of slavery and the Atlantic slave trade lives on, I still imagined that I might get some distance from that experience. So I set out to write a much sunnier book, a book about, you know, individual self-fashioning, life in the city, and in, you know, kind of trying to write that book, I discovered that, oh, I've shifted from one enclosure and I'm in this urban space as a new set of enclosures are emerging, as a new racial order is being constructed. And I I think I was surprised by how brutal and absolute that order was in places like New York and Philadelphia at the beginning of the 20th century. But I was still committed to thinking about practices of freedom in the context of the enclosure. To me, there's a kind of metaphor of space that is throughout the whole book, and even in kind of how you describe wayward. And I don't know if that's a, if you want to say anything more about, about space, but just sort of how, um, how these historical figures inhabit different spaces um, is really, and how you bring those spaces to life is really extraordinary from like hallways and thinking about the spaces you don't really see in images to very obvious spaces like the cabaret or, um, or the street. The poet Dion Brand has this phrase and she says, well, rather than thinking about captivity or slavery as a kind of aberration to this normative order of freedom, suppose captivity is actually the prevailing scheme. And, you know, it's horrifying to imagine that that's the case, but every day we're all involved in this negotiation of space that is trying to exceed certain ways of being managed and policed, and spatial practices are key to that. 
I mean, I think that one of the things that I was really struggling with thinking through in Venus in Two Acts was the violence of the archive and the way power is registered in archival production, and in this case, primarily through the production of absences and silences, the obliteration of lives, all the things that we could not know. But then the the archive was also filled with these fanciful stories of the powerful, but because they had been, you know, filed away in folios and they left documents, somehow um, those forms of um, misrepresentation, of lies, of fiction, had the status of truth, right? Um, and so I was thinking about the relationship between history and fiction and um, the violence of the archive, as well as its fiction and its elasticity. And in the passage where you describe the kind of gambit of critical fabulation, um, both its possibilities, but also the ways in which it might be misused or used towards a kind of romantic end. Um, you cite two artists, um, a poet, writer, Emner Basie Phillips, as well as Stan Douglas, photographer and filmmaker. And I'm just curious about, you know, the status of the aesthetic, which, tell me if this is a wrong reading seems at once to be a space of possibility, but also there's maybe a little bit of ambivalence around what aesthetics offers, you know, a kind of close reading of what isn't there. That's a really difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I've been thinking about it for 10 years also to ask you. So, um, For me, what's really enabling about artistic practice is the way poets and filmmakers and visual artists use materials. And I have learned a lot from those strategies and I deploy those strategies myself. So I think that the status of the aesthetic is very, very vexed and complicated. Um, on the one hand, there is beauty as both a practice and a method that might enable some kind of redress, right, that might be a possible antidote to the violence that is a part of the everyday. At the same time, the aesthetic as a discourse and a set of values is so inhabited and structured and engendered by that very colonial, racist, enlightenment apparatus. So how do you steal something from it that's enabling but not be caught up in its structure of value. So the aesthetic is also an instrument that has been deployed against, you know, black folks and colonized folks. So it was about the exercise of imagining beauty and what it might make possible, but in this tense relationship to the notion of aesthetics as a category. And, and kind of drawing on that and also... Our discussions about space and and your amazing term critical fabulation for thinking about new ways of really bringing history alive is how I also see that term. Um, I was wondering if you could just talk about um, even in, in a very basic way the kind of structure of your book and the process of how you came to choose these particular particular historical figures who were kind of introduced to in the beginning in this wonderful almost it's a like a cast treatment. of film treatment or yeah we were trying to think of what it's like a cast of characters or a film treatment or the beginning of a play and how you found them 
I mean, basically, the unknown, um, these like subaltern lives emerge in their encounter with power, right? So um, much of the way I had access to these figures was at the moment of that encounter, either an encounter in the context of state capture. So the state then produces a record of this live as you're arrested um, and incarcerated, or even in a more, quote-unquote, you know, benign way, the way sociologists and reformers and philanthropists are involved in this project of producing a knowledge of the poor and documenting their lives. And so I needed those figures who were involved in producing that knowledge to be there because I I mean I don't want to naturalize the way material is available to us and I also wanted to you know put those figures under a kind of critical gaze even as it's a loving gaze it's definitely um, a critical one and just the crossing of lives that's the other thing that's really interesting about the promiscuity of urban space and congested space. People from all wa- walks of life kind of cross and encounter one another. And Du Bois or like a housing reformer like Helen Parrish. I mean, Helen Parrish, who is, you know, she's just like such a problem. Yet I have a love for her too because through her journal, I had access to Mamie, to James, to all these other lives. And I think in reading her journal, one of the things that I so appreciated, even though she could not stop herself, was she would always say, like, God, I'm just, like, totally messing up. (laughs) And so, I mean, you know, so Helen was one kind of character, and someone like W.B. Du Bois was another, the person who really begins to describe this thing that is black social life. And so many of Du Bois's descriptions and evaluation of black life um, and its fidelity or deviation uh, from the norm are still in place today. I loved how he comes across as being such a, a, a real figure and that even in some of his own anxieties around sexuality, you have those same anxieties of other characters that you, other figures from history that you have brought into the book. I mean, I think that one of the things that I've tried to do in the work is topple the hierarchies that determine how we know things and who people are in the world. And in a way, while only some of the characters bear the label of wayward, they're all wayward, right? Um, Mm. Even those that are involved in the process of policing and regulation. And I think that's what we get to see with Du Bois. And um, for many people, the portrait of Du Bois is surprising because he's so fixed as icon, right? And that icon is about, you know, the learned man, the Victorian, um, you know, the bourgeois subject. And so what was also interesting for me is Du Bois's uncomfortable proximity to those lives that he's writing about, too. Mm. Space again. (laughs) I think it would be... Interesting just for folks who um, are very um, inspired by that way of of working, just to hear a little bit more about your process in the archive, kind of going from that moment of reading the journals to um, your way of reconstructing or creating a narrative um, anew, and just um, what the various steps in that process are for you. 
firstly, lots of failure, <laughs> you know, lots of drafts, because I think finding the right register was very challenging. And, you know, with Helen, it was like, do I use her journal fragments? How do I, how do I do it? How do I hold all these voices together and maintain um, the integrity of the multiplicity of those voices, but have something like a narrative um, that can carry us across the book. And um, I remember, and I, you know, I share work with friends and, and my friends are very honest. So often I was like reduced to tears and, and, and sharing drafts of this book. I would hope that when you read your, you know, carried away by a story even as you're aware of it unfolding through certain kinds of leaps and speculations that you see the archival evidence that's mobilized in the text, not so much to document um, the sources, but to try to open up these other possibilities of engagement for the reader and the process of revision and stripping away, because for me, part of the close narration or trying to tell these stories from within the space of the chorus was not about privileging a certain kind of reader, right? It wasn't saying like, okay, for those of you who don't know this world, I'm going to guide you through. Um, it's like, oh, if you're willing to kind of show up in the circle, we can embrace you, but no one's going to be getting any privileged treatment here. Along Thomas's questions about process, of when you kind of hit on, it's such a powerful um, way of driving the book, and when you kind of hit on that idea and, and what it means exactly in this book, this idea of the chorus. You know, the chorus was critical in all those levels, you know, literally just these, you know, Koreans, young Koreans in the city. And I think as this, you know, reflection on the tragic in two ways, I mean, there's um, a classicist, Paige Dubois, whose work on tragedy in the chorus is very important to me. And there's also this, you know, extended meditation on the tragic and Black radicalism. So whether we're thinking about C.L.R. James or David Scott's meditation on the chorus or Du Bois himself engaging the tragic as a mode for articulating Black history. But that chorus is overwhelmingly about the tragic hero and the flaws. And so the chorus is backgrounded, Right. The chorus is its strangers, its women, its slaves. Those were the people who were a part of the chorus in classical tragedy. And even in terms of the evolution of classical tragedy, I mean, it was more this like choreo poem form. At a certain moment in its evolution, it becomes the drama we recognize predicated around the hero, but that's not where it emerges. So if you look at early tragedy, then you see something that's actually much more like witnessing chorines in the world trying to make change. From a kind of uh, mechanical or perhaps maybe spiritual level, um, how does that play itself out in both the kind of process of writing and also the process of going back and offering the forms of um, shared authorship, co-authorship, that 
you go to great lengths to produce. I did and I do I live with the characters in the book, for sure. And there was, I mean, in the course of writing this book, I lost both my parents. And these people were living with me. And I felt like they gave me a certain kind of grounding. So, I mean, I think that there's definitely that. And then there's, you know, the ancestral presence and the voices that guide us. So, I don't know, maybe, you know, before writing, I'm like on my treadmill listening to like, you know, William Parker and Amiri Baraka or something. So it's just like, and then it's really, um, it's this long poem of black striving. And we just enter it at certain points. But it's really just, I mean, it is a, a river. There's all this stuff that's already there. And we bring some stuff to it and other people do. So I think you know, being open and really wanting to account for that. But the paradox is, is that often, you know, the biggest debts are those that are sometimes like undersighted. Like I just remember, I mean, I feel like in both, you know, with like Lose Your Mother, I think I had sent off a version of it and and Edward Glissant was nowhere in the footnotes. I was like, oh my God, like this project would not be possible without Caribbean discourse and poetics of relation. And I think that there's often that relationship between like, you know, people who are so with us always. And sometimes they don't show up in quote unquote, like the citations or these things in the way that we would expect because their presence is so much larger. It's like they are a guiding spirit, so we forget to account for them because they're always there. Was there a particular figure that you discovered in your research and who appears in this book who you wished you could have spent more time with or developed in more ways? Or Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I mean, one of those figures will be a part of a next book project. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think what was interesting um, is like wanting to have this picture of a life, but not so much like, you know, a life from beginning to end. Like it's not a biography in that sense. And so I, I think I did want something that felt more cinematic, like you see a life moving in this moment in time and space. Um, but with Mabel Hampton, who I actually met like at a poetry reading that Audre Lorde was reading at, Mabel Hampton was, you know, at a certain moment in time, she was kind of like touted, like the oldest living black lesbian in the world. So she was like on the New York scene and, um, you know, just kind of talking to people about her experiences. I think, though, that going through her archive, listening to the tapes, the interviews of Joan Nessel with... Um, Mabel, I think just her longing for beauty, her just, she was an avid reader. She was really intelligent. She wanted so much. So in her story, the limits of what could be possible in that world. And, and another thing that was so interesting about, you know, Mabel's story, which is also, you know, maybe a bit atypical, um, you know, moving from this like very, cute, seemingly feminine, you know, chorus girl into her developing masculinity, right? 
even in that short chapter um, in the middle of the text where you kind of offer this kind of moving image of, of what um, the picture of waywardness would look like. And it is a kind of synonym for queerness. And I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk specifically about things that are often left out of queerness that are so present in this book, specifically in this moment about sexuality and the kind of sphere of encounter. I think there's a way that Blackness has so consistently failed to meet or to be faithful to gendered and sexual norms and black people have been so brutally like punished and pathologized for that failure to inhabit, realize, respect those norms. Um, I wanted to look, I mean, part of that transition from slavery to freedom is about the lure and the imposition of being a certain kind of subject. And I wanted to look at, oh, what's what's the possibility that resides in a certain kind of failure. That's waywardness. I mean, whether we think about, um, you know, Hortense Spillers on the kind of the ungendering that becomes constitutive of blackness or Du Bois's anxiety about whether black folks will ever be able to have these, you know, heteropatriarchal families because these are not the kind of social structures we've existed in for hundreds of years here. And for me, I mean, just because of how we do live and how we have survived and the way we make things at odds with the norm and in defiance of the norm, I just wanted to look at those intimate practices and to say, wow, look at how people are creating, you know, these webs of intimacy and affiliation and kinship and to recognize that that wasn't simply the failure to, quote unquote, do this other thing, but about an investment and other forms of value and other modes of sociality. Um, But I do think that because of, you know, because so much of the struggle historically to achieve equality and rights has been about us trying to inhabit and mime the norms that has meant that there's been an incredible repression of anything that didn't ascribe to those values. And so there are certain people who are very unhappy with wayward lives. And I think um, it's precisely because a, a certain claim for Black citizenship and equality is all about replicating norms of respectability, heteronormativity, property ownership, all of these things. So what does it mean to not only flout those things, but to say that oh, blackness in in so many fundamental ways is in an antagonistic relationship with with the proper. And um, for many people, that's like bad news. And, um, And I think that a certain leadership class, a certain class of like black elites have been very, very involved in this project of regulation and policing do we want to maybe, if if you if you will indulge us, read a small section? Both Thomas and I independently 
both thought of um, the this amazing basically one page oh, chapter the way where you kind of define the word wayward and, okay. and and since we've been talking a lot about that term, I thought maybe it would be wayward, a short entry on the possible wayward related to the family of words, errant, fugitive, recalcitrant, anarchic, willful, reckless, troublesome, riotous, tumultuous, rebellious, and wild, to inhabit the world in ways inimical to those deemed proper and respectable, to be deeply aware of the gulf between where you stayed and how you might live, waywardness, the avid longing for a world not ruled by master, man, or the police, the errant path taken by the leaderless swarm in search of a place better than here, the social poesis that sustains the dispossessed, wayward, the unregulated movement of drifting and wandering, sojourns without a fixed destination, ambulatory possibility, interminable migrations, rush and flight, black locomotion, the everyday struggle to live free, the attempt to elude capture by never settling, not the master's tools, but the ex-slave's fugitive gestures, her traveling shoes. Waywardness articulates the paradox of cramped creation, the entanglement of escape and confinement, flight and captivity. Wayward, to wander, to be unmoored, adrift, rambling, roving, cruising, strolling, and seeking, to claim the right to opacity, to strike, to riot, to refuse, to love what is not loved, to be lost to the world. It is the practice of the social otherwise, the insurgent ground that enables new possibilities and new vocabularies. It is the lived experience of enclosure and segregation, assembling and huddling together. It is the directionless search for a free territory. It is a practice of making and relation that unfolds within the police boundaries of the dark ghetto. It is the mutual aid offered in the open-air prison. It is a queer resource of black survival. It is a beautiful experiment in how to live. Waywardness is a practice of possibility at a time when all roads, except the ones created by smashing out, are foreclosed. It obeys no rules and abides no authorities. It is unrepentant. It traffics in occult visions of other worlds and dreams of a different kind of life. Waywardness is an ongoing exploration of what might be. It is an improvisation with the terms of social existence, when the terms have already been dictated, when there is little room to breathe, when you have been sentenced to a life of servitude, when the house of bondage looms in whatever direction you move. It is the untiring practice of trying to live when you were never meant to survive.
Well, that well, was amazing. That was. And I want to thank you again because I feel like not only did you introduce the gift of this book to me, but then you introduced Sadia Hartman to me. So I bear that's no so nice. <laughs> you know, responsibility. We're just so lucky that she's such a generous person and is so giving of her time and ideas to us. And I'm so excited for her next project, something to look out for, for all of those who are inspired by this work. It's so true. And I'm also really excited about our own little small project here, um, our Books That Matter podcast, because our next episode will be looking at Ali Smith's novel, How to Be Both. And I think that a lot of themes that we actually discussed here today will end up being really relevant for that novel as well, somewhat unexpectedly. And we're really excited to be sharing that book with you with a special guest uh, next to post this on MoMA social media platforms and to use that as an opportunity to break them down by having all of you uh, respond, participate, and be part of a larger conversation. This is such a treat to be in conversation with you, Prue. And I right wanna, back at you, Thomas. I want to thank the many people <laughs> who made this possible. Isabel Castadio, Mark Desaire, Leah Dickerman, and of course our guest, Saidia Hartman. Thanks for listening to the magazine podcast. Be sure to check out future episodes at moma.org backslash magazine.